0: Before episode 10 starts rolling, we've got a giveaway, my friends. A Max Gladstone giveaway. All four of his craft sequence books. That's right, Three Parts Dead, Two Serpents Rise, Full Fathom 5, and Last First Snow bundled into one delicious giveaway package. Head over to www.bleedingink.fm. That's bleedingink.fm. Click on Max's episode to enter. And you got a full two weeks from an episode's air date to get yourself into this good luck and man this is a good one there there is nothing to writing all you do is sit down at a typewriter and bleed and bleed and bleed what's this bleeding ink a podcast for indie authors with j.s leonard Welcome to episode 10 of Bleeding Inc, a show where writers find solace in learning from the triumphs and struggles of remarkable authors who have bested the written word. Tune in every other week on iTunes or Stitcher. And for those of you who rated the show on iTunes, thank you so much. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do. Visit bleedinginc.fm where you can sign up for giveaways and my mailing list that dishes out tools, tips, and updates for all your author needs. Now, it's no secret that authors have it rough. Fungibility seeks to infect you at every turn of phrase, every scrap of dialogue, every edit, red slash, and cut scene. To be common is to flicker as a pixel in cold television static. The effective writer is in a constant and thrashing dance of disruption. They flee from comfort, and often sensibility, in their quest to flip genre convention while simultaneously honoring it. It's a barefoot dance on broken glass. One misstep and blood swamps the floor. When an author's feet remain unharmed, save for a nick here and there, and arrive at the dance floor's opposing end, it is like magic. Like the first time you witnessed a magnet swirl iron filament, alerting you to mysterious invisible forces that defy common sense and alter reality's potential. My guest today, Max Gladstone, is kind of like that. It was my sheer selfish pleasure to interview Max Gladstone. My intent was to bask in the glow of an author whose line-level polish would make proud any literary snob and whose world-building powers would make any geek swoon. His work has burrowed a unique hole in the fantasy genre, taking from Pratchett and Zelazny and mashes necromancy with some unlikely companions, economics, and corporate politics. In his craft sequence series he writes of necromancers that work in something akin to a law firm responsible for the resurrection of dead gods rather than dead companies submerged in red ink this series has been nominated twice for the john w campbell best new writer award rarely do we gain insight into minds that are equal parts science and art max and i discuss his background his present and his future we talk about his creative process Max is a brilliant guy and like any good magician, loosens the tight shackles of reality's hold with a dash of awe-inspiring magic and joy. I've got Max Gladstone on the podcast today, everybody, and I am so excited because Max has proven himself to be a phenomenal fantasy slash corporate business author. How you doing, Max?
1: Doing really well, great. Glad to be here, Leonard.
0: Yeah, yeah, thank you so much. Now, Max, let's just kick things off real quick. Let's, what's your story? like? What, what do people want to know when they first talk to you?
1: <laughs> oh, gosh. um, well, uh, Big questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Start off with the big ones. Um, so my story is, right now, I am a fantasy author. I do this sort of full time. Um, and I, my first book came out in 2012. And I've been writing since about as long as I can remember. And Three Parts Dead, my first novel, which is a novel of uh, sort of the business of necromancy and a <laughs> junior associated an international necromancy firm who's been hired to resurrect a dead god, so that was probably the fifth novel that I had written, depending on how you count and the oh. first one that came out yeah
0: oh that's interesting so w- w- what inspired okay so you you did four novels prior to three parts dead
1: oh yeah no i mean I, you know, I've just been writing since. Uh, forever, basically, uh, probably the first thing that I wrote that was novel length was uh, back in high school, and then I just kept writing books and sending them around to friends. Three Parts Dead was the first one that I went on serious submission with. I'd sent a couple of the prior ones out to agents once or twice, but um, never in any kind of coordinated way. But Three Parts Dead was the one where I thought, "This is it. This is this is worth a push."
0: Gotcha. So, um, like, who or what inspired you to to get into writing in the first place?
1: Um, like I said, I mean, you know, I read a lot when I was a kid and mm-hmm. for me, it's always an exercise of sort of storytelling. You read something you're inspired by, it, you want to go on and have the same effect for somebody else or sort of demonstrate how much you liked the thing that you read by taking what it was doing and uh, trying to push it a step further. Mm-hmm.
0: And like, who were your heroes when you were young, when you were reading this, when you were getting into reading?
1: Oh man. So, uh, so pretty broad range. Um, mm-hmm. Um, right now I'm rereading uh, one of my favorite books from when I was a kid, The Westing Game by Ellen Raskin, which uh, I don't know if you've ever read that one. It's great. It'd probably be sold as a, as a sort of chapter book or a middle grade book now, but um, amazing tangled little mystery novel about mm-hmm. a bunch of people who are all competing to uh, win the um, the sort of bequest of this multimillionaire who's passed away under mysterious circumstances okay. and left them a riddle challenge. Is it kind of like uh, Ready Player One, but different um, universe? <laughs> well, kind of like that. I mean, it's it's nominally in our universe, and there's a little mm-hmm. bit of that kind of gamesmanship, one-upmanship aspect to it. Yeah, yeah. But it's a lot more about the interrelationships between like 14 or 15 characters who are all going for the prize. Some of them more seriously, and some of them less seriously. So, if you know, if you took Ready Player One and set it in mid 1960s Michigan and made it about like. 20 gunters of all different backgrounds and orientations, um, then that would be kind of like what the Westing game is. It's just amazingly charming. So Ellen Raskin, huge influence. Um, Robin McKinley, fantastic fantasy author, um, was like way up there. I read her books so much. And of course, I was also reading like Michael Crichton at this point. Rogers Zelazny mm-hmm. is probably the biggest influence on my style like for the longest period of time. Rogers who? Rogers Zelazny.
0: Um, Rogers
1: Elazny, got it. yeah, it's Elazny, Z E L A Z N Y, I think, um, and he is a fantastic new wave science fiction writer who's publishing, started publishing, I think, in the seventies, and then was publishing all the way through the like mid nineties. Just yeah. amazing work, really poetic, really yeah. sharp. The kind of guy who uh, really nothing was lost on, and he expected if you were reading his stuff that you were going to be right there with him. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah,
0: I, I I I appreciate it when authors like really care about the line by line when when they've got that sort of cadence to their, to their language, you know. Absolutely. Um, and uh, is that what you're saying? He had that. He's basically poetic. He had a sort of musical tone to his writing. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yes. Well, that's part of it. I mean, there are, there are a number of interlaced things, but he was mm-hmm. a poet by background. A lot of people ah. come to SFF with poetic backgrounds for a number of reasons that are probably too broad for me to want to speculate on. Interesting. Right? I did not yeah. know that. Well, I mean there's an ex- you know uh, Brian Staveley whose uh, book of The Emperor's Blades really fantastic comes from a poetic background. Malmatar who's a, um who's a sort of short fiction writer primarily but also a poet and sort of an active editor of poetry. And Roger Zelazny came out of an academic poetry background, and that's kind of where his first big sort of breakout story came from, also sort of poetic translation. Um, and yeah, I, there are all sorts of reasons. Maybe it's the fascination with imagery and its transformation. Maybe it's mm-hmm. the fascination with form that a lot of people put, pick up through poetry. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so Zelazny took a lot of that, and it all shows in his line-by-line work. But he also... Um, didn't have much patience for people who are going to drop details. I'll give you something mm-hmm. once, and then expect you to have it in mind. Like this is mm-hmm. an aspect of the world, so that he can call back to it later. Mm-hmm. Which makes reading his books, especially his early ones, sort of daunting for for some people now. But yeah. I love them. they yeah. You really need to be on your A game. Yeah, yeah.
0: I'm am re- really into that too. So you're saying that you try and you try and employ some of that in your own writing.
1: Yeah. 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 Absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah, I, mean, I, no- that's- I
0: noticed you had quite. You, you have a very crisp and clean, wonderful style. And um, it's nice to know who your grandfather is. So I'm going to go check that
1: guy out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. So I, I heard that you went to Yale to study, what, Chinese? Yep. Okay. And then you ended up writing a book. So so let's talk about that a little bit. Like, what what's the story there?
1: I mean, you know, I, I had a really good time in college. Um, I really wanted to get Chinese solid um, because... Yeah a lot of, um, a number of reasons. I, I was interested in doing international work and traveling a lot. And Chinese was a great and very difficult language. And I figured I should probably take the last, um, dive through the possible window to get it in my head in a serious way before I had to start learning all languages as like seriously foreign languages. Mm-hmm. Um, and I more or less succeeded at that. But so I was interested in international work and also I'd grown up reading, um, Chinese philosophy and mm. myths and legends, especially journey to the West, which is one of my favorite pieces of writing. It's this fantastic hundred chapter, um, adventure novel, basically sort of supernatural adventure novel from the Ming dynasty, about 500 years ago, um, beautiful, like action scenes and really funny and adventurous. And, uh, I read it for the first time when I was 11 or 12 and it really stuck with me. Wow.
0: So when you say you want to do international work, were you talking like business?
1: Uh, business, development, um, NGO stuff. I was thinking about the diplomatic corps for a while. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, basically things that would involve traveling. Gotcha.
0: Yeah. So I'm, I'm just wondering how that now plays back into your work because you've, you've got this business interest and, and it seems like, you know, that's
1: become part of the universe that you write.
0: <laughs> it's cool. Right. It's good to know that has an origin.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, um, I'm just really interested in the way things fit together. And yeah. you know, business is one of those, um, business and law are areas where a lot of um, different uh, approaches to life kind of fit together. You have people dealing with large-scale ethical questions without a great deal of oversight. So you have a lot of sort of personal working through of ethical problems. And you have a lot of different opinions about the right way to do things. Mm-hmm. Like you know, questions of development, for example. There's very rarely a strong consensus that this is absolutely the morally or like technically even correct way to try to help out a population that seems to be having trouble from an outside perspective or intervene Mm -hmm. in foreign situations, whether that's something that you should do even um, like, so there are a lot, there's a lot of room for really intelligent people to have passionate disagreements about really important stuff, which is, not only not only makes for fascinating study, fascinating study, but makes for intense and uh, gripping reading.
0: Right. That's. I, yeah, I love that you put those two things together. <laughs> I mean, taking fantasy and, and introducing that element into it is such a smart move. Uh, you know, it's 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 fu- it's fun to see how certain certain people with different backgrounds pivot. You know, and, and sure, like yeah. how, how they enter like a whole new freaking vertical and and suddenly they, they take all this knowledge. You never would have thought there was a connection and, and boom, connection. And it's awesome.
1: You know what I mean? Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. getting two great tastes that go great together, right?
0: Right. Well, sometimes, <laughs> hopefully. Uh, so, so tell me about your creative process. Like, how do you approach writing on a day-to-day basis?
1: Uh, I approach it very um, steadily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I sit down in the morning about nine o'clock in a cafe near where I live and uh, have a laptop or a tablet or something with me and just start working. And I do my best when I am working on a book and uh, don't have like other research requirements or like an essay that needs to fit into a particular dialogue um, to stay off the internet and avoid mm-hmm. talking. People and avoid doing anything else until I have about three thousand words on the project, which takes me until generally noon thirty, depending on how disciplined I'm being. And then the rest of the day is for upkeep, business, other projects that are in the fire. Often, if I'm getting like uh, copy edits or revisions back on other manuscripts, or if there's other business that I'm interested in chasing, that's when that happens.
0: Mm-hmm. So about three thousand words a day when you're not yeah. doing research
1: yeah I mean research I'll generally be doing in the afternoons, so it's mm-hmm. more that um it's more of three thousand words a day if I'm working on a um long form piece mm-hmm. because there's a rhythm that you get into with that mm-hmm. or that I get into anyway.
0: do you use any type of like time management or time technique like Pomodoro or something that would slice up your time?
1: No, not really. I mean I understand people some people really get helped by the Pomodoro intervals for me it's The closest thing that I have to a time management approach is a pretty strict division between maker time and manager time, which is a concept that's coming out of software development. So so basically the idea for uh, listeners who aren't familiar with it is that managers tend to think in like 45 minute increments, 45 minutes to an hour. You know, you have these tiny little tasks that need to get done and then you have a meeting where you need to talk about what tasks need to get done and nobody wants the meetings to go longer than an hour basically. Mm -hmm. Um, creative brain needs a lot more space to warm itself up, get into a flow state and emerge from the flow state. Mm -hmm. And if you break that up into hour long chunks, you may not be able to actually ever reach the flow state or state of maximum focus that you want. So if you have both sets of tasks to do, like answering email and writing a book or building a software framework or something like that, it really helps to be able to separate those kinds of time for one another. Mm-hmm. So you have a four-hour block that's just, this is my focus time for the creative project. And then you have other time where you can sort of be flitting around and doing anything that needs doing. Yep. Um, when I am able to adhere to that model, I find myself uh, much more productive yeah. on mm-hmm. a more dependable schedule. Um, mm-hmm. But within that, you know, I try to... I you know, do what needs doing basically. The only important thing is staying off the phone or, uh, or the internet or, or, or getting called for podcasts. Oh, well, you know, I mean, this is the afternoon. So oh, yeah, it's true. Where are you, where are you based? Somerville, Massachusetts.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. So you're your East coast, right? Yeah. Yep. Cool. Um, so, um, Yeah, I I know when you said the four-hour sort of chunk, it's interesting because I I actually am a software engineer. I have have that as my background. Okay, yeah. One of the things that I discovered is... um, I actually don't really have more than a good four hours of creative because I consider software engineering, creative coding is a creative activity. Totally is. And, um, in, in me, like in a day, I mean, Mm -hmm. you can push it, but then you start to really wear yourself out. And, um, you know, I kind of like to be the sort of like the steam train where it's like slow, but or sorry, freight train where it's like slow and steady, but it's slow and steady forever. It's not like Mm -hmm. you're, you know, on 11, you know, from like, you know, for a week and then you're done for like two weeks because you're sick. So I yep. think that's an excellent piece of advice.
1: Um, that's it. Absolutely. And a lot of people, um, a lot of people who end up in a situation where they're able to focus on writing for a decent chunk of their time, have that same experience mm-hmm. of, you know, hitting the end of the, of realizing that you have at most about four to five hours yep. of peak productivity in, in the course of a day. Yep. That's great. And if you try to force it more than that, you get yourself into an unsustainable position. Right.
0: And, and you can experience burnout, which, which personally I can attest is, is horrible.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Do you, you said you like working at a cafe? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So me too. I, I enjoy getting out of the house. I work from home also. So um, yeah, I, f- I find that being around people is actually good on occasion. But I put my headphones on and I just tune out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so you said you wrote uh, a few books or some, some amount of books before Three Parts Dead. Now, what, how did you arrive at this particular blend of like fantasy and, and corporate business? Like, what, 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 what initially got you on that track?
1: Well, um, I really enjoy trying to understand things that I don't have enough background in to properly understand. Mm-hmm. And when you do that a lot, you start reaching for, I start reaching for um, common languages. So, okay, I'm I'm not really going to be able to necessarily understand this thing from the inside out, but I can understand it, um, by making analogies to other stuff that I've had experience with in the past. And as a serious nerd from way back Mm -hmm. the the language of fantasy springs really readily to me, like Mm -hmm. whether it's a sort of a gaming structure or any one of a number of books that I grew up with and, uh, Still sort of inhabit to this day, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. when I started talking to, for example, bankruptcy attorneys about like, you know okay, so explain to me what this is. I don't don't really know how it functions. Um, and they were explaining, well, okay, so you have this thing that's like actually it's not it's more than just the physical assets, right? A company is. It's yeah. a set of ways of doing things, a set of agreements with other people or with other companies. And it as a sort of going concern, is worth a lot more than just the raw physical materials if you were to sell all of them off. Mm -hmm. So every and everyone who this sort of corporation has an agreement with has an investment in it continuing to honor that agreement. They don't need to go out and find new suppliers or new clients. They kind of want this thing to be able to continue as much as it can. So everyone has an investment in the thing continuing even when it's in serious financial trouble. So in the US, there's this rigorous structure in place to allow people to all get together and argue, you know, both the people who own the concern, the company, and um, people who are involved who, who owe it money or who it owes money. And then the, the uh, employees can also have a seat at the table depending on the way the thing is structured. Anyway, so everyone comes together and argues about what was important about this thing, this, this uh, company, and then sees if they, they all see if they can find an agreement that will let them keep going without needing to do the, like, fire everybody and sell off all of the pieces. Uh-huh. Bit. It's not always nice for everyone. Sometimes people get stabbed in the back. Sometimes people come out of it having been really shafted. But the hope is that everyone altogether gets something that all of them more or less want or at least are not furious about. Uh-huh. So, you know, there's a lot of sort of tangly bits going on here, but basically we're talking about necromancy, right? Where you take something that's... <laughs> Dead or dying, uh-huh. um, you carve it open. You surround it by certain wards and protections to keep it from, you know, getting even worse while you're looking at it. Which is basically the way that the Chapter Eleven process functions for us. Uh-huh. Uh, and then you, you, you know, gather around everyone who has an interest in this thing continuing to exist, and you argue over what parts of it are important and what parts aren't, um, how you want the thing to work, and what you really need for it to do because you can't put it all back together the way it was before, but you can put back together something that basically does what you need. The question is, what do you need? And who are you? Like, who's actually having the argument? So once you have that agreement, you, you know, pull out the stuff that doesn't work and weld some other things together and stitch it all back up and then uh, hook it up to the lightning generator and you know, tell Igor to get cranking. And sooner or later, Delta Airlines or whatever rises off of the slab and shambles forth into the night to increase shareholder value. So this seemed like a very straightforward way to interpret this process, which, you know, maybe says more about me than it does about the process. But once I hit on that, um, a lot of things kind of cascaded off of it, the, this metaphor of thinking about sort of agreements as power and the sort of juridically determined nature of reality, sort of reality as a conversation, like why does a corporation exist? Basically because we all agree that it exists, or we've built a structure that we all agree exists within which the corporation can exist. Um, so, and yet, these are entities that have real lives and real deaths, and their lives and deaths have real pal- palpable effect on human beings on a moment-to-moment basis. So, um, the more that I teased out the implications of this basic analogy, the more I became interested in the structure that would result. And it seemed like a good place to tell the kind of stories that I am really interested in telling, frankly, which are, tend to be about smart people having really intense problems with one another
0: i find it um i find it i find it funny that this this is like such a natural conclusion for you to come to i mean you're, you're like the perfect blend of human to, to arrive at that conclusion right like the fantasy nerd that happened to study business and then yeah necromancy and corporate you know freaking chapter 11 stuff totally makes sense as an analogy of another you know one another
1: yeah but why not i mean it, it's um i i like everybody has to come to whatever art they're trying to do, bringing their own particular weirdness to it, and this is definitely part of mine. But part of
0: part of me, it feels like there's. I mean, there's obviously got to be some satire in here. Obviously, you're modeling, you know, this corporate stuff off of fantasy. There's got to be some satire in there, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do, yeah. Do you, I mean, are you a fan of Terry Pratchett? Because it feels like there's some Pratchett going on.
1: Oh, totally. Okay. I'm a huge fan of Terry Pratchett. In fact, the sort of the earlier drafts of Three Parts Dead especially felt very Pratchettish, And he's, I mean, ever since I read Good Omens for the first time right. back when I was tiny, um, he was a huge sort of fixation of mine. And yeah. um, there's something that he does, there are a number of things that he does that I really love. Um, and one of them, which I'm doing absolutely in the craft sequence, is using the slight remove of an invented world, to be able to look very closely and very critically at stuff that goes on right. in lived reality you know things that you would never really be able to put on a mimetic page mm-hmm. you can talk about in fantasy especially because fantasy has such a cool set of tools for externalizing metaphors and the uh, sort of deep structures of society you can talk about them as magic or you can project them as gods sure. in a way you really have a hard time doing in what I would call like memetic fiction or the stuff that generally tends to end up in the literary side of the bookstore. Right.
0: It kind of, you know, it kind of reminds me that you're, you're trying to, you're pulling off like the daily show a little bit. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, I hope so. yeah, yeah. A brilliant this, show. Good well, stuff. Yeah.
0: Good camp to be in.
1: <laughs> and they have the same license, right? Like a good daily show episode gets to say things that a normal news show doesn't.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It's viewed through the the, the lens of comedy versus the lens of like the news network. And, you know, and yours is viewed through the lens of fantasy and it's the same thing Um, and it's all brilliant and it makes me happy.
1: (laughs) Glad that it does. It makes me happy too. Good. So, okay.
0: You, uh, you, uh, so you had, um, did you have the book done before you tried shopping it out there? Like, like how did you know you wanted to go to the publisher with this particular novel?
1: Well, um, a number of things. Basically it was a, Cooler idea. Like the idea seemed more interesting and more different from anything else that I'd ever seen mm-hmm. than the books that I tried to write previously. Yeah. I'd written a number of books that were all um, getting into things that I was interested in at the time, mm-hmm. but thing that felt as. Do you uh, mind, ob- uh, spelling those out a little bit? Like what? The- oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. So, so um, let's see. Uh, so there was a, the first thing that sort of counts as a novel was this enormous sprawling kind of fan fiction forum thing that I was involved in for uh, for about a year. I took a I was on this role playing forum on the internet and took a whole bunch of people's characters and basically um killed them in the context of an <laughs> enormous like multiversal war and it was huge and it was dramatic and it was enormous fun. Um and you know all in all a pretty great way to spend so, so my free y- time.
0: Your roots <laughs> are in, in Dungeons and Dragons or something of that nature, just like yeah. all fantasy writers. <laughs> I'm
1: just kidding. Well role-playing and gaming are hugely important oh, yeah. and one of yeah absolutely i mean for me and just i think for the world in general the, one of the powers of the role-playing circle and one of the reasons that i feel a little sad that it still is more of a peripheral culture yeah. it remains yeah. more remains a peripheral culture after its initial like enormous emergence where you have the kids in et playing dungeons and dragons right because yep. that's the cool thing to do yeah. um is is that uh Gaming, tabletop gaming especially, and especially role-playing gaming, is a like user-focused um, storytelling mechanism. Mm-hmm. It's, it's people at the campfire. Yep. You don't need anyone's permission to do it. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. That's it. And you don't need anyone's permission. There's no platform that you need. There's no internet connection that you need. If you have some folks who are willing to sit at a table for a while... Mm-hmm. You can, and, and you can agree on some rules to use, which you don't need to buy from anyone. You can make them up yourself mm-hmm. if you want. You can have this really profound and um, sort of psychologically intimate experience of mm-hmm. like walking through a story with people. Yep. That's something really awesome. And it's not a ritual that we have so much in no, our culture. Yeah. these
0: Well, listen, well, Max, if you are ever on Roll20 and you're a DM, I want it yeah? on the game. I'm serious. All right. All right. Fantastic. That would be... Yeah. That would be like, like a dream because I can't <laughs> find anyone to play with for one. But two, I, 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 would. Oh my God, you would probably throw together some stuff that would just blow my mind.
1: <laughs> so, are, are you on Roll Twenty at all? Are you familiar with that? No, no, I'm not. I haven't done too much uh, sort of online roleplay yeah. or MRP days.
0: Well, if that ever I'm becomes of interest
1: to you. <laughs> Tell me about Roll20 a bit. What's, yeah, what's that World like? Yeah, Roll20
0: is like a, it's an online, um, I mean, check out the website, but but basically <laughs> you can, you, it's got, I think it has... Yeah, it's it's a it's a role playing interface where you have VoIP and you have video and but it gives you all these tools and stuff to run your campaign. Like you have a map and you could put, put you know pieces on the map and, and describe where things are. And they've got um, you know specific things built on different various uh, uh, campaigns for various um, you know different uh, brands of of uh, you know like Dungeons Dragons versus the other ones um, and. <laughs> Yeah, it's really cool. I have yet to actually play it though, because I haven't found anyone. But I've like I've almost played it like four times, mm-hmm. and I'm just bummed that I haven't been able to do it because it looks super fun.
1: All right, I'll go poke around. Uh, that's the kind of thing that I really wish it existed. You know, exactly. Six months ago, while I was still in China, it's
0: yeah, right. Because yeah. then you could just role play with
1: your buddies. <laughs> well, that's
0: it exactly. <laughs> for, for, in the U.S., um, what a
1: strange new world <laughs> we've come into.
0: It's good. It's good stuff. And according to Ray Kurzweil, we're going to be uh, seeing a lot of new strangeness very soon. <laughs> Man, I've been reading some of his right. predictions recently. Good lord. Um. Anyways. Um. So, you. So you had. Okay. Okay. Hold on. You had this initial draft. Did we even answer how we? Okay. And you started shopping. Okay. So it was a unique. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, yeah. Unique so, premise. Yeah.
1: So right. So so yeah. So um. Where did we go? Oh, we. I was talking about like earlier books. So I wrote mm-hmm. a mystery novel that was really inspired by some. Th- some stuff that uh, I clicked on in Dorothy Dunnett's Lyman Chronicles mm-hmm. about characterization and information release, ultimately, even though I wouldn't have described it that way at the time. <laughs> um, there were a couple, um, there was one sort of very wild and far out science fiction novel that will probably never be published. <laughs> so who knows if people are like, searching through crazy juvenilia at some point in the far, far future, which was like really great for me to put together this book, but mm-hmm. also very different, um, from something that I would write now.
2: Yeah.
1: And then, um, sort of adventure archaeology kind of novel. There was a very abstract expatriate novel, um, about mixed martial arts, among other things. Um, that I wrote while I was living in Southern China, which was very cool and also really good for me to write. Yeah. But all of these you know, were sort of exercises in one way or another, um, looking back. And with Three Parts Dead, I felt not only did I have like a good idea that I wanted to really run with and had done something fascinating with by the end of the book, mm-hmm. um, it was frankly the first book where I decided to take editing seriously, mm-hmm. or the need for editing. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoy the writing and composition process, but it took a long time for me to realized just how much work needed to go in after I'd written the end of the first time, yep. just revisions and revisions and sentence level polishing mm-hmm. and careful examination of word choice and sentence structure and paragraph by paragraph. Like, what is this bit doing here? Why am I describing this? How can I get to the point faster? Um, my drafts still lose at least 30 percent. I think that's
0: um, I think that's actually a good target. I mean, Stephen King mm-hmm. on
1: writing said that it's what first
0: draft is, is wait first second draft is first draft minus ten percent, and final draft yep. is second draft minus like ten percent or so. So it's almost twenty percent.
1: <laughs> yeah, that seems about right. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely gone far over. I mean, I've written first drafts that needed like fifty thousand words cut from sure. them off of one hundred sixty thousand word manuscript. Yeah, but I I, I subscribe pretty strongly. To the school of thought where your story has a certain amount of impact, right? Mm-hmm. And you want each page of the story to have as much impact as possible. Yeah. So, to the extent that you can remove words, like that's what people are going to think when they put down your book. They're going to think, "Oh man, this was like totally awesome!" Uh, like every page was like so cool, and then that scene, and then that scene. Mm-hmm. So, to the extent that you can remove the parts that aren't making someone feel. Totally engaged mm-hmm. with what you're doing, mm-hmm. you're increasing the overall perceived quality and well, actual quality of of the work. So, like, take out all of the filler; should be all killer. Yeah, the, nice. The I process.
0: like that. <laughs> so, when you were um, when you were learning like how to edit your own work, uh, where where did you turn to? Like, what did what, what did you study?
1: Oh man, um, so a lot of different things um, for me. Uh, the big hurdle wasn't so much; didn't turn out to be so much story structure level stuff for which you have. Um, there are great resources like, uh, gosh, I don't know, McKee's um, story is a good one, but like by no means the end point of the conversation. Um, I really like uh, actually for story structure, which I didn't have to worry about quite so much. I really recommend screenwriting books overall. Mm. Um, Film Crit Hulk has a great screenwriting one hundred and one, which is kind of the overall discussion of like story structure, and character development from a non-dictatorial perspective. There are a lot of screenwriting books that will come at you like, this is the way to do it, and it ain't necessarily so, especially for prose fiction. Right. Um, In screenplays, I mean, there's a metagame, right, of Mm -hmm. screenwriting, where you you have to be behaving in such a way that 20 or 40 people who think they know what's what about screenwriting are going to agree that you have written a good screenplay. And if they're all operating off of the checklist from this one book, then you have to read the book if only to be able to cleverly subvert or um, dance around sure. the point. What,
0: what, was, what was the name of that book?
1: Oh, so this is, this is just screenwriting One Hundred and One, um, which is by this, this dude, Film Crit Hulk. I think he's a dude. Film Crit Hulk? <laughs> Film Crit Hulk. Yes. So this is, um, Back when Badass Digest was still called Badass Digest, this this guy writes these 10,000-word film reviews that are fantastic. Some of the best scholarship, like sort of public consumption film scholarship that I've ever read Um, in like Hulk voice. You know, so all caps, like Hulk especially interested in interplay of form and content in this scene, you know, that kind of thing. And it's great. Uh It's great. He he gets away with so much because of that voice. I think it's really, really fun to read. Yeah. But so that book's a good balance of of uh, giving you structural development without trying to lock you, the reader, into some preconceived notion of what the story is. Because especially for books, um, there are fewer stages that a book needs to go through before it hits the stands Mm -hmm. and hits bookstore bookstore shelves than like a studio film, let alone a television series. Good lord. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I mean, you just, need to I, yeah. I was just I was just
0: uh, there was an awesome article. I forgot the blog it was on, um uh, but it was about how hackers came to be. That movie, you know that that sort of like Yeah, yeah, totally. Oh, totally. My Hacker. god. That thing sat on the shelf for like 3 years before what? and really? the, and the guy was living in New York interviewing hackers and wrote the script. It was awesome and it just went through all the bureaucracy that it could possibly go through before it actually okay. was made. It was, so, But yeah, I, I I get what you're saying. That's what I'm saying. I, I will link yeah. to that, though. I will find that that the article because it is fascinating. Go go on, though. Sorry. So books yeah, have less all- time to, sh- to shelf.
1: Yeah, totally, totally. So yeah, I mean, you have to impress the heck out of an agent and you have to impress the heck out of a, an editor and some other people at the publishing house. Um, and then you're kind of good to go. And then, I mean, of course, it matters that you impress reviewers and you impress readers. Obviously, it's what it all comes down <laughs> to. Sooner or later. Can't forget about that. No. <laughs> well, yeah, no. I mean, everyone, really, everyone else can hate or be middling about your book, but if readers or some like subgroup of readers really love it, mm-hmm. that's all you need. Yeah. Um, so but how, but yeah. Good. So 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 there's that. And but a lot of the work that I needed to do is, frankly just line by line. Editing. And mm. you can get some of that from books. You can get some of it from John Gardner. He'll talk yeah, about it Gardner's a little bit Gardner's fantastic. There are um, amazing books of writing exercises that um, I'm trying to remember what the title of it is. Um there's a sort of 101 like writing exercises book that some of the Iowa people put out mm. that's a lot of fun and really informative, but I'm spacing on the title right now. I
0: will find it on um, LinkedIn because now I'm gonna go buy it. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> there's a uh Let's see. I'm glancing over at my, um, at my shelf right here. There's, um, there's a, a book called, uh, the fiction editor, the novel and the novelist, um, which is also really great. But in the end, it came down to knowing that you can't use words, especially good ones over and over and over again. And it is rather basic. Want- yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's like a list of 10 things gets you most of the way and okay. I could do most of them off the top of my head, you know, don't use cool words over and over again. You get the word that you love once, right. Um, you know, don't, don't spend a lot of time in tenses that aren't simple past or present. If you're writing in present, like mm-hmm. if you're spending a lot of time in blue perfect, if your hads and you know, wases are all over the, if you're spending a lot of time in blue perfect, don't, Um, You only really need one to sort of set the tense of the the scene that you're working on. And otherwise, you just clutter the whole manuscript up with hads and don't use like uh, progressive tense too often. Again, because you end up with a lot of like was traveling or the banner was flapping in the wind as opposed to the banner flapped in the wind. And if you really want that progressiveness, you need to be able to use it, but you don't want it to be like, one of the 500 times that you used it, that you didn't need it. Sure. And, you know, so all of this kind of stuff, like uh, you, you uh, cutting out perception verbs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Feel. Yeah. And, any any feels, any feels, you know, you well, cut out the, the character feels, cut out the character sees, cut out the character hears, because again, you can convey all of that with simpler and more direct sentences. Well,
0: now that we're on this topic, I'm, I'm, okay. I'm going to bring it up. I was going to bring it up later, but I, I, I want your take on the, 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 Old cliche of how do you mm-hmm. show and don't and not tell? Oh, okay. Because <laughs> um, you started getting into it then,
1: right? don't yeah. Use feel. Show it. Don't tell it. Right? Don't tell us how he's yeah. feeling. Yeah. Well, so, so there's a plus and a minus to this. Um, I, on the one hand, I see very much where that old saw is coming from. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I think it's a kind of blunt saw that has a bunch of tooth cut teeth coming off of it in weird directions. It's just likely to cut you if you take it too seriously or mm-hmm. if you don't take it seriously enough. Okay. So the the part of it that works is, I think, saying, if you're going to tell me that the... um, If you as the writer are going to tell me that someone felt sad, there's probably a better way for you to convey that information. Mm -hmm. Like if... But (sighs) I think what the show don't tell thing is often getting at is don't... got tough. Yeah, it's tough. So here's here's the problem with show, don't tell. And, and the reason that I'm struggling kind of spinning my wheels right now is I'm trying to think of a good, concise explanation of a case in which show, don't tell, is always a good idea. Um, lots of books tell, and lots of great literature tells. I mean, it co- goes from the gnomic present stuff, like the beginning of Anna Karenina, right? Mm-hmm. Happy family are all like each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. He doesn't show you that. I mean, he goes on to show you that, mm-hmm. but he tells it to you right at the beginning mm-hmm. um, or the beginning of uh, beginning of pride and prejudice, right? is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man and possessed of a good fortune will be in a want of a wife. Okay. So that's not, she didn't take the time to like three, or four establishing scenes of that truth being universally acknowledged, she didn't even put it in somebody's mouth and have them saying it. She just sort of put it there as this thing that's the kind of societal perspective of the book is presenting.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and you'll get also, there, there, are, there are levels of, um, of Zoom almost, mm-hmm. Rose, I feel. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. If you are in a tight zoom on a particular moment of time when what really matters is showing exactly what Leonard is doing at his desk at this particular moment, then showing detail helps bring you into the scene. You know, you you can, you can smell the coffee. You can like, you know what is going on outside the window and you can describe these details in a way that's going to invoke the mood, especially if you're very carefully choosing the details right if you want a sort of dark and um, ominous situation then you can even if it's a very sunny day outside right you don't need to invent you don't need to push into the pathetic fallacy to really do this you can select details and select methods of conveyance that will push you into this ominous territory but if you're zooming out a little bit it's you can establish a great deal about somebody by narrating their life from remove i mean uh um, on the road by Jack Kerouac does this for almost the entire book. Mm-hmm. Like it's a book that's full of broad tracking shots of people going across huge swaths of country, and he'll gloss over three months of hanging out in San Francisco by saying something like, "We hung out in San Francisco for three months," or "For the next half year, I was working as a security guard." Maybe he'll drop one instance of, of uh, you know, something that happened while he was working a security guard there, but then he'll just as quickly pull back to this larger, more epic scale. And that's one of the powers of prose that you can go from the careful articulation of detail to huge swaths of time in the same paragraph without your reader losing you. So it's a tricky, uh, it's a tricky line to walk.
0: It's true. But I mean, we're talking about point of view right here, right? I mean, it's the zoom of basically the existential nature of what it is the person's experiencing through the narrative. If it's in the eyes of someone, you're obviously going to be like in the moment, like you said, showing a lot. And then, you know, if it's more of an omniscient pulled back 30,000 foot view, you know, you're going to have more exposition. More description, more telling. Is that what is that was? Is that what you're saying?
1: That's part of what I'm saying, uh-huh. though. Point of view. You can also, even if you're very carefully anchored within a point of view, mm-hmm. have um, these same differences of uh, perspective mm-hmm. and detail mm-hmm. talking about. So, um, what's a good example? Um, so Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom, you have a bunch of characters who are all telling the story of this one particular family's experiences leading up to, or really right after the Civil War, um, to one another. And some of the characters will like tell the story back, and they're all using details that they've inherited through several layers of uh, oral storytelling to inform their tales, but some of them put dramatically different spins on certain details. Then others, some of them present characters who had appeared in a very positive light and a very negative light, that kind of thing. So, and even if you have somebody just sort of telling you what they did, um, any Raymond Chandler story will move between a very concise, beat-for-beat beat explanation of what's happening in a particular scene, You know, if there's a fight or if there's an argument that's really pertinent to the plot, and then Pull out to Chandler to uh, Philip Marlowe, rather saying, you know, and for the next six months I didn't see him that often. <laughs> so, so that kind of mastery um, lets you a kind of technique lets you choose very carefully what details you're going to show, like what is important enough to. Um, spend a lot of time conveying it in terms of sense impression. Mm-hmm. I don't know if
0: that makes any sense. Well, it does. I think it makes a lot of sense. I think when you first when you first start writing, though, it's it's a, it's a really tricky thing because you don't really understand what those things are. And I think yeah. it's funny because because you know it took you three or four books before you were you were mm-hmm. confident to go to a publisher. And I think it takes about that amount of writing, you know, or at least uh, that amount of journey between storylines. I'm not sure how to put it. you right. But I think it takes just sort of cutting your teeth, right? and and um, totally. and uh, it eventually comes to you. I know for me a lot of this stuff sort of becoming much uh much more clear when I, you know, hired an editor and she completely mm-hmm. tore me apart and and oh, yeah, her, her comments right. like made no sense to me and I was like good god I don't understand what this woman's saying. But then we'd sit down and talk about it I'm like, "Eh, <laughs> you know, and it right, was sort yeah. of a I guess a shortcut to to learning it through pain.
1: But <laughs> but you know, yeah, well, I mean there's there's pain involved anywhere. Oh in, yeah. In the writing education, That's right? That's the name of my podcast. <laughs> 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 to I like it. Ink.
0: Um okay, so so that was awesome about the show to tell. And I actually I really like that perspective. The sort of um, you know, how, how you kinda you kinda shit on it a little bit, which is good. I think it's good to present both sides to that, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, while at the same time acknowledging what's great about it. So um, but but back to where we were with your with your journey into publishing. Um, so sure. you had this you had this idea. Um, now what why now why didn't you for all the indie, indie you know, listeners, why didn't you decide to go self-publish?
1: Well, at this time, a number of different reasons. Uh-huh. For one thing, at this time, the um, self-publishing route really wasn't as robust as it's become in the years since. Mm-hmm. Um, for another thing, this story didn't exactly fit in a particular category. Right. Um,
0: didn't have the genre to support it.
1: Yeah, well, it wasn't... It wasn't Something it wasn't like this thing that you really enjoy, but different in this one particular way, mm. um, which that's not every self-publishing success story, but I think it's a it's huge. It really helps mm-hmm. if you're getting into um, the work independently. Um, well, you see a lot of excellent category mysteries. You see a lot of excellent category romances. You see a lot of excellent fantasy novels that are using sort of tropes like traditional architecture of fantasy novels in much the way that people have been using them for a long time. And that's fantastic. It gives people who are writing that sort of stuff an avenue for um, getting their work out there. Mm -hmm. And it gives people who are interested in reading the kinds of things that they grew up reading to just keep reading them Mm -hmm. and read new stuff that's being published in that vein. Totally for it. Um, The world that I'm building in the craft sequence is taking bits and pieces from a lot of genres. So it would be pretty hard to it'd be pretty difficult to position um, in a particular niche outside of this is this thing that is like itself. Mm-hmm. So I felt like it would really benefit from having the push that a larger publisher could bring to it. Right. Um, also, frankly, um, I didn't, when I started this, have much of a platform or um, sort of space on the internet developed for myself. And mm-hmm. I think that people who are excellent at self-marketing or already have that kind of uh, a groundwork built will do much better with self-publishing. I I think uh, these, I mean, I'm thinking of Andy Weir especially um, with The Martian as a great example. I'm not talking about a huge like, uh, you know, Kanye West sized promotional apparatus, but Andy Weir had by the time The Martian came out, a very successful sort of hobby webcomic with sizable, devoted readership of which I was one, you know, and, yeah, um, web comic? I didn't know that. Oh yeah, totally. Totally. So there's this webcomic Casey and Andy, which is out there somewhere, um, still on the internet, which is very like MS paint. It's not, you know, the most visually compelling sure. webcomic that you're ever going to run across, but it's really funny, really kind of like nerdy sort of, yeah, it's beat for beat, mad scientist humor, basically. And so, you know, there there was this group of people who are really into stuff that Andy Weir does. And then when he started doing The Martian, we're spreading that to all of their friends. So there was like this, even it doesn't need to be that large of a community, but there needs to be some kind of community there. Um, Or I think people really benefit from there being that kind of community there. And you see a lot of people who come off of fan fiction to self-publishing in the same way. They build a following on various fanfiction community sites and then go there. But I'm not really an indie publishing expert. And it seems to me at this point that the combination of the lack of a sort of preset niche for the books to fit into, mm-hmm. plus my own lack of experience with self-publishing and self-promotion, um, and plus my lack of a particularly developed framework uh, or platform meant that there was a lot that a traditional publisher could bring to the table. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah,
1: I
0: think um, I I definitely think because I've been speaking with a lot of authors about this. And when it comes to having a book that doesn't quite fit into a a genre, it's like a clear cut, you know, this could definitely work in this space. um, You know, you kind of need someone to vouch for you. And I think, Mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest things publishers can bring to the table is being that gatekeeper or that voice for you saying, Hey, you need to check this guy out because look at all these other books we've got published and they're awesome. And this guy we think fits into that category. And sometimes, you know, you need that push. So I think it was, I think it was actually an excellent decision on your behalf to do that. So well, thank you. I'm glad you agree. Good logic, sound logic. Um, Okay. So, so you knew you wanted to go, you know, get yourself published. Mm-hmm. How did you approach that? Like what did you take? Get a like a first draft manuscript idea? What'd you do?
1: Well, so I had I, I basically polished the manuscript to within an inch of its life. Mm-hmm. I mean like nine, ten drafts or something like that before I went out with it. It isn't a route that everybody's going to take, but I think I really needed it mm-hmm. and I think the book benefited from it. Once I had a manuscript that I was confident was beyond reproach. Um, I went through the what I what was at that point the standard agent query process. I exhaustively researched a bunch of agents, built a query letter, then built 20 or 30 more query letters until I found one that I thought really captured this very strange book that I had put together. Sent out a bunch of those. Got a lot of interest. Um, generally, agents who are a little um, skittish about the novelty of the concept because I was querying primarily in 2008, um, 2009. So publishing was still very closed down after the uh, sort of enormous meat grinder experience. And these query
0: letters uh, were to agents, not, major not publishing uh, houses? Yes, okay. these were to
1: agents. Okay. So a lot of publishers, especially at this point, were not open to unsolicited submissions at any time. Mm-hmm. Um, these days you'll see a few of the uh, established, especially the like, um, bigger indie presses, Mm -hmm. um, thinking of Angry Robot, especially Mm -hmm. having open submissions. I think Dolan's even had an open submission window of like six weeks or something this last year. And maybe that's coming up in this, in early July, early January. Um, anyway, so you'd have, there really wasn't a way to get the manuscript over the transom with any, on any timeline. Tor always has, I believe, kind of open submissions policy, but it's very much you chuck the book over the transom and then maybe two, three years later, you might hear back if somebody's interested. So it seems like going to agents was a better idea, yeah. especially since I would need an agent eventually to handle the contract negotiation stage of the process. Mm-hmm. So I sent out a bunch of queries, got you know uh, basically, I'd say 30%, maybe a little bit lower than that hit rate in terms of agents requesting partial manuscripts off of the query letter. Mm-hmm. And then sent in the partials and then the full manuscript request when those came in. Um, and eventually, by iterating this process for a long time and tweaking the query letter and getting better at pitching and selling the book, I, you know, an agent offered representation. Um, I She had a few suggestions, which I thought were very much in line with where I wanted the book to go.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I went back into the manuscript, did some structural revisions. They turned out to not be anywhere near as extensive as I initially feared. Um the book was basically still the same book. It was just slightly better, and then we went on submission, uh-huh. which is what you want, right? right that, a, uh, exactly.
0: I was about to say that's exactly what you that, want, <laughs> right?
1: So, um, so then we went on submission and got a couple publishers interested, and and uh, that's how we
0: ended up here, basically. And you, and you ended with Tor,
1: right? Yes. Okay. So
0: you shopped in eight oh eight, and and it didn't actually publish until twelve.
1: I shopped in, I guess, 2000. So it took me a while to find an agent, and the agent to publisher process was much faster. So,
0: how how long did it take to find an agent?
1: About a year. So I shopped the agent from late 2009 through, for an agent from late 2009 to basically early 2011. And once I found the agent, then it took me a couple months to get a publishing deal, and then about a year from that date to, uh, yeah, about a year from that date to come out with the first book.
0: So, okay. So, so that was three parts dead. You've done th- mm-hmm. three, three books since then, or do you have the fourth one on the way that's not published? Um,
1: three books since then. Yeah, okay. So, we have, and then four there's a the fifth one. Yeah, fifth one. Yeah, away, four sorry. out.
0: Yep. And um, how much creative control do you have over like the art direction of the covers and such?
1: Um, I have very little contractual creative control over the art direction. In oh. practice, Tor really likes me and I really like Tor. And so they're willing to at least listen to some ideas that I have, but not so much in terms of like composition, just the one thing that's been really important to me since the contract negotiation stage of the process is that I want the characters on the cover of the book to look more or less like the characters who are inside the book and to, you know, dress more or less the way that they dress. So, you know, it really mattered to me that Tara would be black on the front of three parts dead Sure. Um, she is in the book, right? And the right. same has been true of all of the other books. The tor has been really receptive y- to my concerns on that score, right?
0: And were those the original covers when they first released?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, because they're really yeah. they're really nice. <laughs> so, yeah. tor did- I like them a lot. Yeah. I think that has done really a fantastic job with the covers of yeah. my books. I'm especially excited about the cover for the next one. Oh, awesome. Uh, Four roads crossed. Looking forward to it. Um, That's
0: very cool. So since then, I've seen you've written some
1: short stories for
0: for Tor Mm -hmm. and Uncanny. Yep. Do you suggest that as a good exercise for authors to sort of get known?
1: Uh, Yes, though I don't... Yes, though not necessary. Um, If you are going on agent submission or on really any kind of mass submission, even if you're sending direct to publishers, any credits that you have under your belt, anything that says like this person is serious, mm-hmm. helps okay. a, little. a
2: little. Excuse
1: me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so anything that um, anything that says this person is serious, take them seriously helps. So if you have good short fiction sales, if you have you know there are workshops that attending helps a little bit. If you have an MFA or some kind of writing background, even if it's in a different field, I think um, that can help a lot. Interesting, but. It's also really easy to get sidetracked with short fiction, I think. How so? Well, if you are not natively a short fiction writer, if like what you want to be doing is writing novels, then you will probably be more rewarded by honing your novel writing game
2: mm-hmm.
1: than you will by honing your short fiction writing game. There's a different pace right. to write a novel. There's a different kind of endurance that's required, and there's a different kind of um, rhythm. Mm-hmm. You can take good novel skills and turn them into good short fiction writing skills, um, and, but you'll probably just feel better about yourself if you're trying to write the novels that you want to write, as opposed to the short fiction that you feel you kind of need to write in order to be taken seriously or in order for people to read your query letter. That said, I've found that I often come up with ideas that are sort of short pitch ideas, things that really can get done and would be best done in 3,000 words or 5,000 words. Once I have those, I will write the short fiction because, you know, it's a couple of days of work to get that down. And then I can just polish it at my leisure. If I really am interested in uh, sort of making something shine, it takes a while and I give it the time that it needs. But, you know, why not let it do what it needs to do? but in general with writing, I think if you're, if you're doing something because you think you should, that's going to be one more bit of resistance that you really don't need. Like Especially getting started and trying to fit your, um, your game together. Don't make the hill any steeper than it needs to be. Sure.
0: Yeah. I think the least amount of friction is obviously going to probably get you to the finish line because <laughs> I mean I have this this stat has come up on this podcast before but like I think there was a there was some sort of poll and the poll was a, a pretty large sample it's like 2,000 people and um, or at least a, a respectable number and it was you know do you want to have do you want to have written all by the end of your life was the, I guess the, the the question and I think 90% something like 80 or 90% of people said yeah yes well, yeah that's like a dream of mine right and the reality, though, is that 1% to 2% are, are those that actually finish a, a novel. And um, it's a pretty, pretty wide gap, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. it means it's really, really hard.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it yeah. is really hard. And, like, a lot, of people, a lot of people are vaguely interested in writing and don't necessarily want to follow it through. I think of it like exercise a great deal. Sure. Um, if you're doing something that you love doing, then you're going to do it more and be in better shape. Yeah. yeah. If you... Aren't, if you hate lifting weights and the way that you think exercise, the thing that you think exercise must be is weightlifting, then you will never do it, unless you're a masochist, which you know maybe you are. Yeah. Fine, um, <laughs> and you'll probably be in worse shape than if you had, like, let's say that you loved swimming, you just went swimming like whenever you felt like it. Oh, you know, excellent! I love swimming. Swim four times a week. You will, you will be in good shape. You may not have like. The, you know, texts that are like a foot out from your chest or something, but you will be in better shape than the person, than the you who would have never gone weightlifting. Um, and I think the same is true with writing. You have to figure out what's exciting you about the prospect of writing. Mm-hmm. Do that. If it's writing short fiction, fuck, fantastic. Go for it.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, you know, I think, take, I think breaking it down to the smallest possible step, the one with least cognitive resistance is i think mm-hmm. the best way to go because once you've done that you've got that under your belt um the momentum that's just built from that tiny little step is usually enough to get you to the next tiny little step yeah and then once you've got like a you know a thousand of those under your belt oh ooh, i've written a novel <laughs> yeah. So, yeah yeah absolutely. You know, swimming can definitely lead it can upgrade into you know um weightlifting you know yeah more
1: comprehensive training protocol. i mean especially if you're trying to do anything at a high enough level you need to incorporate cross training in order to actually support yourself
0: right and i think that you know like Anne lamott's bird by bird she breaks down like the whole idea of writing is like you know it's just bird by bird you just do one by one it's one sentence at a time you know and i think when you start thinking in those terms um it becomes a lot a lot easier so yeah i can see that yeah um all right so who who would you say your ideal reader is
1: Oh man. I don't know. Um, (laughs) yeah, sure. Um, my, I really like writing stories that I want to read. Mm -hmm. So, but it's not just me. Honestly, my ideal reader is somewhere in the sort of sweet spot or um, in the overlap of about 15 or 16 people that I could name. Um, Mm -hmm. I write that I want my friends to enjoy. That's awesome. You know, and the people I care about and people I respect. Do you
0: do you have a picture of them in your mind when you're writing? And you're like, oh man, you know Joe or whatever the other name is is really going to love this one. This one, you know, scene here. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure, yeah,
1: yeah. sure. And sometimes I'll slide in in jokes that I know like only one person's going to get. Um, but for the most part, it's yeah, like what what rhythm is necessary to make these people that I really want to enjoy this book sit up and pay attention. Sure.
0: Uh, I know we're coming up, coming up on the end of this interview, but <laughs> I've got a few more questions I want to try and get. Yeah, to sure, that. okay, yeah, let's go. Lightning round. Are, are you
1: good on time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can, <laughs> I can do more minutes. Yeah. Cool. All
0: right. So, um, interactive fiction. How did you? How did you enter that arena? Like, how did you start doing doing that?
1: Well, I mean, the interest springs very much out of my interest in gaming from way back. Okay, let's right?
0: yeah, let, let's, let's let me let me pause and back up. Are you a gamer, and what type, if you are? Um, I am
1: a gamer. I am, I think, natively and by history, a role-playing gamer, especially tabletop RP, like we were talking about mm-hmm. um, previously. These days, I I went through a pretty intense video gaming phase when I was younger, and I still think of myself as a video gamer, even though I play maybe one or at most two video games a year at this point. I just don't have the time and the sort of mental energy mm-hmm. for a lot of it. Um, I love. These days, tabletop board gaming. Yeah, um, it's amazing board. the resurgence, isn't it? It's fantastic. It's fantastic. I love it. God I think love I Kickstarter. Know- <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, so Kickstarters done it, um, and then like other cultural institutions that really play to it, like the mm. Tower. And for me, especially, I love the Shut Up and Sit Down guys. Fantastic video cast of a uh, sort of board game review thing of a bunch of friends in London who are all talking about, like, the board games that they well, love.
0: And- Will Wheaton's got one, too. What is that? I forgot.
1: Yeah, right. Um, oh, God. The door song. It's awesome. I'll, I'll link it. <laughs> but yes, it's, it's yes, a great yes, show. Link it, link yeah. it. Uh, everybody... Oh, Tabletop. That's the name of Will Wheaton's oh, one, too. Tab- yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's the one that everyone except for me watches. <laughs> <laughs> Not because I don't like it, but just, like, I don't know. There's only so much time in the in the universe, right? Yeah. Um, but so the th- I love tabletop board gaming for the following reason. It's something that I can do with my friends where I don't need to sit down and write up an adventure beforehand. Mm -hmm. Like the excitement is in the box and comes out of the interaction of the players. Yes. The the night of tabletop board gaming, I can, we can be like trying to save one another's little people who are escaping (laughs) a sinking island from enormous lizards or we can be slamming each other's home worlds with enormous battleship fleets <laughs> that we've spent the last four hours constructing, or we can like be fighting a virus together or trying to escape this thing. Or- pandemic. Or- yeah, pandemic. Yeah, pandemic, exactly. Yeah. Oh, my wife and I are, are chewing through pandemic legacy right now. It's yeah. awesome.
0: Yeah. Um, it's, it's, so- it's great that your wife's a gamer too. <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: No, it helps. It helps. Yeah. Um, what I love about tabletop board gaming is you get that kind of joyful social experience that used to happen with couch co-op or couch multi in video games. Or the arcade. Yeah, Why or not. the arcade. You Why have the experience of it, totally. I mean, you know, my back when I was going to nerd camp in high school, right, like <laughs> we managed to, um, a friend of mine like either rented or somehow contrived to have a Dreamcast with him in the dorm room <laughs> where he was staying. And so we would stay up until like six o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Every night that month, playing um, Soul Caliber, basically. Oh my just God, I,
0: I played so <laughs> much Soul Caliber on the Dreamcast. It's not even funny.
1: Yeah, no, it's a fantastic game, and you and can just Power kind of Stone get and <laughs> right. Like you're 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 tossing the controller. You're watching somebody else do it. Like somebody will stay up until they're getting blisters on their fingers, just because they're better than everybody else. And then someone will finally take them down, and then it'll be an all for all scrum to see who's in charge. And it's mm-hmm. like there's this social experience of gaming that I feel gets really sapped. When you, when it's just you and the enormous monitor, and then the other people on the other end of the voice chat, but you know that's just like that's the you know life that I grew up with, and maybe uh, kids today will have like profound um, nostalgic memories of the voice chat.
0: I, you know, I think, though, one of the things that, that we, so Call of Duty and things like that, and I don't mean to get off on this tangent because I'm sure the listeners could care less, couldn't care less about <laughs> this topic. But, you know, I think there's a lack of, like, uh, resp- or, uh, accountability. Like, people can just say the nastiest stuff, and there's no mm-hmm. one there to, like, literally punch them in the face. Like, if you said something that rude or mean or, you know, derogatory, you'd probably get right. into a fight in real life. But these yeah. kids are just, I mean, they're like, downright evil almost and whatever i think it's you know do not have a filter and the kids are kids but i don't know i, I agree man i think that, that definitely having that interaction is is uh is great so so how does that play into into the year the interactive fictions you've created for like ios and stuff
1: well so i really like i really like gaming and i really like the aspect of interactive narratives that like things can happen and then you're having to choose how you're going to respond to them whether as a player who's like looking for a tactical advantage or as a character or as a you know a player who is trying to convince a character to do the things that they think the character wants to do, if that makes any mm-hmm. sense.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So the opportunity to let players explore a world that I'd created um, in in both of the games that I've written, uh, *Trace of the Deathless* and *The City's Thirst*, which is an, another game also set in the Craft Sequence universe, um, we could push and explore concepts that I'd presented in the books in greater detail. Mm-hmm. Sort of. Force the ethical decision making on the characters, as opposed to a reader sort of seeing other people being confronted with the complicated scenario.
0: Okay, so when you when you've written the interactive fiction, has that has that kind of come full circle and informed your like static fiction? I guess you could say you're just your regular writing.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh. I mean, it's definitely fit, shaped the way that I think about outlining and um, character development because you, you need to get a lot more explicit.
0: Right. Are you an outliner um, or a pantser?
1: Eh, I, I do a little bit of both. Yeah. I've become...
0: That's the best. I think that's the best.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, so right now I'm kind of in love with note cards, which is something oh, yeah? that Margaret Dunlop, who um, wrote on The Middleman, is now working uh, w- along with myself and Brian Slatterly and Merle Lafferty on... Book burners, which is a sort of serial fiction podcast um, adventure that um, we're writing for Serial Box Publishing about a bunch of secret agents working for the Vatican who are running around the world trying to fight magic and stick it into a box. Well, that um, sounds that sounds super great. Oh, <laughs> it's totally awesome. Serial Box is actually a fantastic venture and totally worth looking into. Um, it's the idea is every week we come out with an episode of um, this evolving story in sort of seasons. So think about it kind of like HBO, but for e-books. Right. And so the episodes are about 50 minutes to read, about 45, 50 pages. Yeah. So you can read them in the course of one commute. If you're buying them through the Serial Box app, then you also get the audio so you can listen to it. And have oh,
0: that- it's an app. Serial Box just it sells these as like little audio units. little Yeah, exactly. Oh. Well, audio
1: or, or text reading. So you can get them oh. on the Kindle Or on iBooks, but you can also download the app on your phone and then get them through that, and then have access both the audio and the uh, the text in the same place. I dig it. So how does that play in the note cards? So, well, the note cards. I mean, just in order to make this system work, we all need to kind of know what page one another's on. You can't just write one chapter and then have somebody else write the other chapter because it's too complicated and there are too many moving pieces that way. Yeah, Yeah. So we need to be we need to have outlines, and so in order to have outlines. Um, I just paid very close attention to what Margaret was doing because she had the television writing experience and outlining is very important there. And I fell in love with her use of not just beat for beat outlines, but also just note cards to lay out story beats. So the wonderful thing about note cards is I can deal myself out a desk full of cards that all have um, that, that like represents my entire story. And it's not, set in stone, if I'm thinking while I'm putting this out, oh, you know what, I really need another character to carry this beat. Then I can just write a card with that character on it and drop it into the middle and shift everything around. And I've done that in longer form fiction. Right. I've done that frequently in longer form fiction. When I do that in longer form fiction, if I've been flying by the seat of my pants, I sometimes need to delete 20,000 words and then rewrite them (laughs) with this character in. Or three or four working days trying to weave this person through and then smooth out the edges like a potter to make sure that you can't see the seam. And now I just get to like, Oh yeah, there's no cards there. It's done. It's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And the more I build up the structure, the more ideas suggest themselves. And the more I start thinking about uh, voice and style and form, and it frees up a lot of uh, creativity. Yeah. All this stuff was going on inside my head. um, But you know, when I have it outside of my head, there's even more room that I can, uh, for, for processing what I've done already. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is I realized as I started doing this, that I used to do this when I was starting off doing sort of online role-playing stuff. Mm-hmm. I'd talk through the beats of the story with players. I'd talk them through with, um, with readers or co-conspirators. And that was an outline. Right. It was just, an outline that I was delivering in you know, a like, oh god, you guys can't, won't believe what's going to happen next, <laughs> you know, in private message chat to somebody who had promised they weren't going to tell anyone. Uh-huh. So this way, I get to have that conversation with myself, right? Which is lonelier, but still a lot of fun. Well, I think it's, I think it's rewarding. <laughs> with, <laughs> with with what tools do you use to write? What tools do I use to write? Um, I use Scrivener mostly, though. I'm experimenting with different workflows for that right now. Um,
0: So so what kind of workflows? Like, what do you mean?
1: (laughs) So what I have been doing for the last five books, so maybe I shouldn't change it up too much, is um, Scrivener plus um, a text editor on the iPad for editing. Like IA Writer? (laughs) Yeah, like IA Writer, or I'm using ByWord, I think. Yeah, ByWord, okay. What I'm considering doing for this next book because I've, when I'm writing on a laptop, which I do a lot because I'm cafe, I, I tend to sort of shrimp myself forward. So I'm like hovering over the keyboard with my chest and like my eyes are two or three inches from the screen, which is not a sober or sensible way to to sit. I realized that I could have a much more ergonomically comfortable experience if I... Basically took an iPad and set it on like one of those hardcover bookstands a little bit further back from me, and then used a wireless keyboard and was just connecting to the iPad. Sure. It's not as light or as um, svelton everyday carry as my MacBook, but it's not too much heavier, not too much bulkier, and at the end of a four hour session of typing, my shoulders feel nice and comfortably draped as opposed to somewhere <laughs> up in the grip of my ears. So that said, I'm now eyeing um, sort of single user experience solutions across both platforms. Because what I could do is use the standard workflow, which is um, syncing my Scrivener file to to an external folder. So it's all plain text and then editing that in ByWord um, or IA Writer, depending on which I decide to settle on. Or I could get something like Ulysses, which would have a Mac um, implementation and, and, uh, sort of iPad implementation that have basically the same user experience. So I could literally like be writing the thing on the iPad, sync it up to the cloud and then come back and be writing it on Ulysses also, mm-hmm. which is a lot of advantages. Yeah. So I don't know, going back and forth on that right now. Um,
0: very interesting.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's really easy to valorize process and to like, get too into the weeds of it. Everybody does what they do in their own way and there are strengths and weaknesses to basically any approach. But for me, I really value Scrivener. And I think by extension, Ulysses also, for its ability to um, have subdivided chapter mm-hmm. headings. Yep. So you're not working on one enormous file, you can yep. get more of a sense of what's going on in the manuscript at once.
0: That is exactly why I love Scrivener. I remember when I first laid my hands on Scrivener and I was like, oh, my God, I think I can write a book in this. (laughs) Yeah,
2: absolutely. Yeah,
0: because I was like, because it it thinks the way I think, right? Because I'm all about like nested, like, bits and pieces like I need I need to be all over the place and then you know it's all one document right just like just like when you're coding something it all compiles down to one long instruction right but you don't code that way you code in classes you code in bits and pieces and chunks and um to me that's a much more natural workflow you know what I mean and Scrivener's definitely uh great at that and I always uh, recommend it now so you're saying that everything will flow like, the tools you use like Bioword and Ulysses all that flows back into Scrivener is that how that works?
1: Right now, everything, right now, ByWord is flowing back into Scribner. Okay. I'm experimenting with trying to do, trying like the do it all in Ulysses thing, but yep. I'm not confident that I want to stick that way.
0: Yeah, I gotcha. That makes sense. That makes sense. That's interesting. Okay. So, um, like, uh, what's, what's next? What's, what's next for you, <laughs> Max? What's, what do you got going on?
1: Well, right now I am getting ready to start the sixth book in the craft sequence. Great. So outlining and playing with note cards on that a lot. And I am. Do you use false. note cards in Scrivener? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but. No, I don't. I, I like the physical aspect of the note cards. I might, trans- I might transfer them to Scrivener in the end, but for <laughs> me, like getting up and pacing around a table and scribbling on stuff with a uh, magic marker or permanent marker is with, with, a still go- important part of the thing.
0: With, God forbid, like analog devices. <laughs> yeah, I know. What? <laughs> a pencil? <laughs>
1: yeah, jeez. Hey, Medieval. Body. Use it to do stuff. Um, <laughs> so, so, that's, so I'm working on that now. At the same time, I'm trying to finish up a, uh, the last episode of The Witch Who Came In from the Cold, which is a sort of Cold War magic and spies serial that I'm working on for Serial Box. Um, mm-hmm. Lindsay Smith, the uh, espionage author, and Ian Tregellis and Cassandra Clark and I are all collaborating on. And that's going to be fantastic that's that awesome of um, the end of january it's really fun um, spy drama with mystical things going on in it people are running around there's there are monster-y kind of things and just everybody lying to everyone else and that <laughs> sort of backroom cold war fun and also getting ready to start the uh, second season of book burners which the like awesome Vatican secret agent-y thing that uh, I was talking about a little earlier. right so a lot, a lot of hot irons in the fire all at the same time.
0: yeah, that's all that's all awesome. I like how you're 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 branching out into some sort of experimental spots like you have got I mean the the book burners thing alone is is a really interesting new take on on how people can consume narrative, you know yeah and, and I dig it. I dig it I, I'm sorry what was the witch one the, the you,
1: you called the witch it? and from the cold so that's another cereal that um, we're doing for cereal box.
0: okay neat so it's like the vatican one but but with a cold war background yeah yeah exactly that's awesome okay um cool so so to wrap things up where can people find out more about you, max
1: you can find more about me on my website which is maxgladstone.com or on twitter at maxgladstone great that's awesome
0: i th- man this has been such a phenomenal hour and 15 minutes this has actually been the longest uh, Bleeding Ink podcast episode yet because it's packed with the goodness.
1: <laughs> All sorts of goodness. Well, thank you so much for uh, sticking with me for an hour and 15 minutes. This was a lot of fun.
0: Oh, I'd, I'd stick with you for another hour if you, if you had it, but <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, my, your people's ears get tired,
1: so. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. My throat's getting ready to give out.
0: All right, man. Well, thank you so much. And until next time.
1: All right, till next time. Thanks a lot.
0: For more episodes and giveaways, head over to www.bleedingink.fm. That's www.bleedingink.fm. If you want to help me out even more, you can go check out my book, Modern Rituals, of The Wayward Three, on Amazon today. And if you like what you're hearing, share the show. My goal is to get this show into the hands of as many writers as possible. So share it with your friends, your family, other writers you know, and let's make this happen. And also, I don't know if you guys know this, but I'm a software guy and I make tools for writers. Check out jslauthor.com. That's for JS Leonard, jslauthor.com. There you can sign up for my mailing list, get free tools and all kinds of awesome stuff. Thanks for listening.
2: The ink has run dry. See you next time.